Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Last week, one of our frequent podcast listeners asked me how we sort through all the media noise to correctly anticipate a stagflation economy more than a year in advance when few economists, politicians, and prognosticators expected increasing inflation along with declining goods and services production? That's a really hard question to answer because the U.S. and global economies have an infinite number of moving parts that are not only influenced by consumers, but by global political leaders, central banks, and media spins. Analysis of economic and political history is highly beneficial, but by itself is limited as the world is on a learning curve and will generate new scenarios rather than just offer replays. Just like any team sport, everyone learns and adapts, but also like any team sport, winners and losers emerge based on their relative strengths, training, their grit, evaluation of competing teams, and of course, luck, good or bad luck. Now I'll try to humbly respond briefly as I do want to introduce you to the largest and possibly most successful financial market player in the world, and that player is BlackRock. And BlackRock owns approximately 10% of all the stocks traded in the United States. I'd say that was pretty big. I'm going to later also recommend to you the first 20 minutes of a really recent interview with a leading financial reserve and financial market advisor who sees trend changes in the stock and bond prices dead ahead. Here are some key facts that have allowed the accurate prediction more than a year ago of today's stagflation economy, along with some recent supporting data points. Data since the 08-09 Great Recession included and still includes these highlights. For example, before COVID, the U.S. economy was, in total, stagnant for years. That is, there really was no year-to-year real growth. And the growth reported was only due to higher prices for goods and services. We covered this in detail in prior podcasts. Additionally, before COVID, investments in new plant and equipment in total across the United States was and still is too low to support new job growth of any significance. Substantial growth in jobs over the past several years, pre-COVID and during COVID, reflected increases in part-time workers unable to get full-time jobs, along with decreases in our workforce, in other words, decreases in those working full-time. Entitlement programs were growing, labor force participation was on a downtrend, and the new jobs counts were feeble versus the new graduating classes of both college and high school education completers. The rise of the FANG stocks, that's Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, offered new employment opportunities, but their hundreds of thousands of jobs could not replace the millions and millions of unemployed or those stuck in part-time jobs. 
We all know that Amazon is a major success story, but we don't often see the stories of the thousands of businesses and the millions of employees and the many stores, mom-and-pop stores as well as chain stores, that went out of business during Amazon's rise. Financially, we have been mesmerized and distracted by the FANG companies, which now account for over 25% of major stock market averages versus the many thousands of companies that have not participated in the historical stock price levels. By the way, don't jump to the conclusion that I'm an advocate of the status quo or that I don't appreciate the FANG companies, because I do, and I do advocate for business and personal growth, and I am a customer of these rising star companies. However, I force myself to look for market forces, regardless of their origin or impact, in other words, a view that's based in reality. Optimistically, if we can all make better decisions or decisions based on an improved situation analysis, we'll all benefit and we'll help each other. I just covered the key stagnation trends, which were only magnified by COVID. Generally, they were not caused by COVID, but COVID made their impacts more visible and much faster. Now for the inflation part of stagflation. For two years in our bi-weekly podcasts, we've given evidence of how and why the Consumer Price Index does not measure inflation. Even though most people think and accept that it does, it doesn't. And our prior podcasts are still available, so please give them a listen. You should safely assume that inflation in goods and services that your family buys is at least 2, 3, or 4% higher than the official CPI index. Or better yet, assume it's double what's reported in the CPI index. It's only in recent months that the heavily manipulated consumer price index cannot report a low 1-2% annual increase that it's been reporting for years. And that's because fuel prices, restaurant prices, grocery store food prices, entertainment, including movies, events, and streaming providers, apartment rents, commodity prices, and so on have all jumped in price from low to high double-digit rates. This is in the past year or so. If you're a renewing renter, I'm sorry to needlessly remind you. I know you don't need to be reminded. One of the main reasons to keep reported consumer price index low is that it impacts Social Security benefit increases. We know Social Security will run out of its own funds in 10 or so years, so an approximate 6% record increase coming up this year is highly undesirable by politicians and by government agencies. This is the last thing they want to report, and they certainly don't want to report multiple years of high consumer price index. And once again, the actual inflation is probably running twice whatever is reported. These annual adjustments in the Social Security benefits continue to be kept artificially low by the underreported CPI increases. So please imagine how high inflation is running this year if the government has to report a 6% benefit increase. Now I'll introduce you to the current thinking of global economic and financial leaders. I mentioned BlackRock before. Well, Blackstone used to be BlackRock's parent company. Blackstone spun off BlackRock, and now BlackRock on its own is the world's largest owner of U.S. stocks. They have a portfolio that approximates $10 trillion. 
But Black Stone, as opposed to Black Rock, Black Stone is the world's largest manager of alternative financial assets. So one part of Blackstone that spun off BlackRock is the dominant owner of U.S. stocks. The original company, Blackstone, has grown much slower, but is the dominant company in alternative financial assets. As an example of alternative assets, Blackstone owns over 100 companies in their private equity portfolio. Additionally, they own not quite 100,000 houses. In the 08-09 recession, they were a major buyer of houses that were in foreclosure. They went to banks and financial institutions and bought packages of houses in foreclosure. They then split the rent stream of the houses they bought and rented and sold securitized financial products of the rent stream for an amount of clear and present money and held the assets. And now they, from time to time, sell some of the assets as real estate prices have gone up so substantially since they bought. So they are a leader in alternative assets. And Blackstone's president, Jonathan Gray, a few days ago, expressed his strategic guidance to his many companies. Quote, have your supply chains closer to home and keep more inventory on site. He cited semiconductor shortages, and he felt these would be with us for quite some time, and additional soaring commodity prices, which on their own are inflationary, but for a large business encourages building inventories higher now when prices are lower than he anticipates they will be in the near future. Jonathan Gray called out that soaring commodity prices threaten a global recovery, with specific plans for price increases now in the public domain by Unilever and Nestle, which will directly impact the CPI and actual consumer prices, as well as prices that are in the pipeline for paint. Very few people think about paint, but house renovations, being what they have been during the pandemic, are going to be facing a major increase in paint price. In his recent global communications to his 100-plus owned companies, Jonathan Gray gave some direct guidance. Quote, Since our expectation is that we will see higher levels of inflation, you need to budget for higher energy, higher food, and higher labor costs, as this inflation is going to stick with us. There's an elephant in the room today that no one seems to discuss, and that's wages or labor costs, as Blackstone's president mentioned. We can agree that we face this issue that directly relates to future wage inflation from some events that have actually been published by our global media. Even our own UCLA Anderson forecast rightly pointed out that an economic reformulation in the context of restaurant and hospitality workers is now overdue. Simply said, $15 an hour or slightly higher is not enough to bring staff back into jobs that have had few career paths or lifestyle-changing financial benefits in the long run. Now, compound a transitory minimum wage job with increasing COVID-related health and health care risks. For some, expenses for COVID illness, to say nothing of risks of recovery, are inadequate. Maybe long-term AI and robotics will play a significant cost savings role, but for the next few years, these labor-related expenses can be expected to increase and increase a lot. 
Keep in mind, pre-COVID, almost 10% of the entire U.S. workforce worked in the restaurant and hospitality industry. That is, they worked in hotels, motels, conference centers, mom-and-pop restaurants, restaurant chains, and so forth. That's a big impact when these labor expenses go up. Think about airlines. Staffing at today's wages is a big issue and is slowing any recovery, even if business travel stays low. How about our clogged ports and empty store shelves? We have a shortage of an estimated 100,000 truck drivers, and this shortage was real pre-COVID. It's getting worse, and truck driver wages are heading to the sky. I think we all benefit by considering the outreach to leading professionals who make their living by accurately evaluating the present situation and the future pathways and directions. A long period of inflation is not at all what politicians and the Federal Reserve want, and it's certainly not what they communicate to us. In a recent podcast, I introduced you to Danielle DiMartino Booth. She is a former Federal Reserve executive, the author of the book Fed Up, and founder of Quill Intelligence, a highly respected advisory firm for many large hedge funds and private offices. I'm providing a link to a YouTube video of just days ago in which she was interviewed. I strongly encourage you to click on the link on the SoundCloud site. Watch the first 20 minutes of this video. The balance of it doesn't involve her. It involves other speakers, and it's off-target of what I'm talking about. So please watch the first 20 minutes. She talks about the second installment from a prior YouTube I presented to you and an update in areas that relate to inflation, stocks, bonds, cyber currency, and the economy. She also is of the belief that there are seeds of instability in the Federal Reserve, but I'll let her speak to that. I think getting to know more about the Fed on a gradual basis is really going to pay off for all of our listeners. She jokingly notes that she seems to be providing a free MBA by her observations and analyses. But I seriously think she's on target. You'll benefit from this 20-minute interview, no doubt. In the meantime, be safe, stay financially healthy, and importantly, stay healthy on all fronts. Take care. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.